Hello, welcome to Get Real Health Season 2. Today's conversation is a deep dive into mRNA vaccines with Dr. Anna Blakeney. She's a bioengineering research scientist who actually works with RNA on a daily basis. Before 2020, Dr. Blakeney was working on RNA vaccines for other diseases, but when COVID began, she and many other scientists around the world shifted focus to prioritize COVID-19 vaccine development. Now, Dr. Blakeney runs a lab at UBC here in Vancouver, where she works on optimizing how we deliver RNA to the body for medical purposes. In this conversation, Dr. Blakeney explains what's in mRNA vaccines, how they're made, and what happens inside your body after you get jabbed. She also addresses several common concerns, the idea that this technology is too new to trust and that the science was rushed. In reality, RNA-based therapies and vaccines have been in development for decades and began human trials years ago in other diseases. Since we covered some of the science pretty quickly, I thought I would give you a quick primer on mRNA vaccines to set the stage. Normally, inside each of your cells, you have a permanent cookbook filled with recipes for making proteins. That cookbook is written in the language of DNA and lives inside a special vault called the nucleus. When a cell needs a protein, it makes a photocopy of that recipe in the language of mRNA, then sends that photocopy to the cell's kitchen. So when you get an mRNA vaccine, it's basically like being injected with a recipe photocopy. That recipe is cooked inside your cells, then shredded within a few days. In the case of COVID vaccines, the recipe encodes the spike protein for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That recipe never even goes inside the inner vault of your cells where your permanent DNA cookbook lives. Dr. Blakeney and I both feel incredibly grateful to have access to mRNA vaccines, and we both received this type of vaccine to protect ourselves and others against COVID-19. To learn more about mRNA research and how to be an informed health consumer, I highly recommend checking out Dr. Blakeney's TikTok account. Without further ado, Let's dig into a conversation with Dr. Anna Blakeney. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Thank you so much, Dr. Anna Blakeney, for taking the time to chat today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I thought a good place to start would be introducing a little bit about your background and why you are such a perfect person to speak to mRNA vaccines and shed some light on the truth of the matter when there's so much conflicting information. Yeah, absolutely. So I did my PhD in bioengineering at the University of Washington, um, really more in small molecule drug delivery. But then for my postdoc, I pivoted a little bit and trained in an immunology lab at Imperial College London, working on a platform technology called self-amplifying RNA vaccines. And so we actually were planning on going into a clinical trial last year anyways, um, although for different indications. But then when the pandemic broke out, we ended up making a COVID-19 vaccine. So I was part of the team that did a first in human clinical trial for self-amplifying RNA. And so, yeah, I know the RNA vaccine space well, and it's actually been quite exciting over the pandemic that the field has gained so much momentum. No kidding. There must be a lot more action happening than ever before. 
I was hoping we could cover today a bit of the history and then take us to the present and deep dive into COVID-19 vaccines and then look forward to what the future may hold because I know that there's still more we can do with this platform. Let's start with the, just setting the stage with what's the origins of the mRNA vaccine concept. So when did this concept come to be and what were the theoretical advantages? Like why not stick with all the vaccine platforms we have now? Who was it that sort of came up with this idea and what did they hope that these would bring to the table? Yeah, great question. So there's a few different questions there. So I'll try to cover all of them. So this technology, I think a lot of people don't realize, but actually RNA vaccines have been being studied for decades now. Um, it's just taken a long time to really get the technology in a place where it's truly clinically translational. But some of the first papers used showing that we could inject RNA into a mouse and see protein expression were published in 1990. So the concept has been around for a really long time. It always just takes time to develop a technology. But I guess to answer your question, one of the main motivations for developing RNA technology is compared to some of the more traditional styles of vaccines, like inactivated viruses or protein vaccines, manufacturing RNA is a lot simpler because we call it a synthetic process. And what that really means is that it doesn't require cells. So if you're going to manufacture a vaccine that's based off of a virus or a protein, you have to use cells to actually make the vaccine. And then there's lots of really complicated purification steps, and it requires really huge infrastructure and generally a lot of time and resources to make those vaccines. On the contrary, for RNA vaccines, it's much more doable. So you could make a million vaccines in a one liter volume. And so it's just a total game changer as far as the actual size of the manufacturing equipment that's required, which is really why we're seeing now that it's these companies are able to produce billions of vaccines in a year, which is much more of a challenge for the other types of vaccines. I had also heard that this platform was in theory more flexible. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So you may have heard now that it, it's actually quite quick to pivot and make a new type of RNA vaccine. So the only limitation is really just knowing which protein that you need to encode in the RNA. So as long as you know the protein, the turnaround time is really fast, actually. So essentially what you do is just type the protein code into software. You then order the DNA, use a reaction in the lab to make RNA from that DNA template, and then package it into lipid nanoparticles. So this is what's called a platform technology. And what we mean by that is that you can use the same type of RNA and the packaging and the lipid nanoparticles for really any sort of vaccine indication. So that means that, you know, if you do a lot of troubleshooting with an influenza vaccine or something like that, but then COVID comes along, it's really easy to design a new vaccine. It really takes a matter of about a week to do so. Thank you for that explanation. And as we kind of progress through this conversation, I'd like to dig more into what you see for the future. But let's back up a little bit more and give some specifics on what happened to really set the stage to really have such accelerated development. Like why was COVID the first one? Was that just lucky timing? Or what happened prior to COVID? Had these vaccines, this platform been used in humans? And I think there's from what I've read, there's two pieces to the story. There's the mRNA piece of it, and then there's the actual delivery that the mRNA is carried within. So can you elaborate on both of those and what, what had happened prior to 2020? Yeah, absolutely. So in my mind, there's kind of 
two really important discoveries and kind of two really important clinical trials that a lot of people don't necessarily know about. So as far as the discoveries go, the first one was what's called modified nucleotides, which were was a type of RNA that was developed by Catalan Carrico and Drew Wiseman, um, primarily at the University of Pennsylvania. And so what they did is they used what's called pseudouridine, which is just the U-nucleotide from RNA, and they found a way to make this synthetically. So it's not the one that occurs in nature, and they found a way to synthesize it and incorporate it into these RNA molecules. And what this allows us to do is that your body has evolved all these mechanisms to recognize foreign RNA because lots of viruses contain RNA. And so we've evolved over time to sense that and shut down those viruses so that we don't get really severe infections that kill us. So this is the same for any RNA vaccine. But what using these modified nucleotides allows you to do is that your body isn't able to sense the foreign RNA as well. So it essentially makes it so that it's a viable technology to use because otherwise you can get some really, a lot of side effects and it may actually completely shut down the action of the vaccine. So the modified nucleotides were first really important discovery. The second one is really the lipid nanoparticle technology. So RNA is a large negatively charged molecule and if you think about your cells, so if you just inject RNA into your body, your cells also have a large negatively charged membrane. And so they repel each other. Like if you just inject what we call naked RNA, you don't see very much of it just spontaneously taken up into cells. And so what this means is that we have to have some sort of formulation that allows the RNA to get into cells. And so this technology, which people have probably heard about with both of the approved RNA vaccines, both utilize what's called lipid nanoparticles. So these are just four different lipids that form a nanoparticle around 100 nanometers in size. And this makes it so that the particles have a neutral charge. So they're taken up by the cells and then delivered the RNA into the cytoplasm where it can do its thing. So without the modified nucleotides and without the lipid nanoparticles, the technology just isn't effective enough. So it really just took time for these to, de to develop, which actually has taken over 20 years now, really, for both of those. So as far as progress for RNA vaccines, so some people may not know that actually we have a lot more long-term safety data on RNA vaccines than you may realize. So the first RNA vaccine that was used in a clinical trial was a rabies vaccine um, that was made by CureVac, and that clinical trial started in 2013. So we now have eight years of long-term safety data from people having these RNA vaccines. But another thing that I think actually is really helpful is it's not a vaccine, but in 2018, the first siRNA therapy, a drug called Onpatro, was approved. And this is very similar formulation-wise. So it's a short piece of RNA, siRNA, but it's also encapsulated in these lipid nanoparticles. And so it's a treatment for a rare disease called amyloidosis. And what happens with this treatment is that patients actually receive this RNA treatment every month. And it was approved three years ago. So we now have patients that have been undergoing this treatment for three years receiving RNA and lipid nanoparticles every month, which gives us a really good indication that people are able to tolerate repeat injections of the RNA, especially you probably would never get that many RNA vaccines in your entire lifetime. 
So this is where we get a lot of the data that tells us it's really a viable technology and, and ready for mass deployment. So we have one approved indication, just to recap, you said there has been one case of full approval of a therapy where it used basically the same carrier bubble, but a different type of our small RNA within it for therapeutic purposes rather than vaccination. And then you mentioned, was it rabies, you said, where there was a vaccine trial? And so what happened there? Is it Was it safety issues or not effective enough? Or where does that one other vaccine trial stand? Yeah, so I think it was just still in the development pipeline, right? So that started in 2013. I think they actually went back after that clinical trial to improve the efficacy of it. The safety profile was totally fine, but they just didn't see, I think, quite the efficacy level that would warrant moving on to a phase two trial. And this is just like, this is the normal pipeline, right? Where it's like, unless there is some huge motivating factor like a pandemic and like tons of money that gets thrown into it, it's just not that feasible to do this many clinical trials, you know, especially there were really like three main RNA companies working on this before the pandemic. And so they make as much progress as they can, but it's just a, generally a lot slower to develop vaccines. So to reiterate, prior to 2020, there had been human trials, and the technology essentially was ready for prime time, but maybe just hadn't particularly found the right indication or the right disease where it was going to take off. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think so Moderna had also done flu vaccine trials prior to the pandemic. So I think it was like people were starting to try it out and really get a sense of how well does it work. But the difference is that nobody had ever done like a phase three clinical trial for an RNA vaccine, right? So that was the main thing. Nobody had ever done a large scale efficacy trial. And so, yeah, that was really the progress that was made with the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. One of the concerns I hear often about these vaccines, and I'm sure you hear it as well, is that where they were developed too quickly. So maybe you can just speak quickly to the stages that a vaccine normally goes through, the testing that they normally go through, and how this compares to the normal testing, both process and timeline. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's a really interesting, I of course get this question all the time, and I think it's actually a little bit nuanced, right? So to develop an RNA vaccine is fast, like it can take one week. So when we were working on our clinical trial, we developed our vaccine and designed it in early February. And from that point on, it didn't change. And I'm sure that's the same for, you know, Pfizer and Moderna and all of these other people, because once you have that preclinical data, you can't change anything about the design or the formulation. You just have to keep the same thing through all of the clinical trials. So the part that takes a long time is moving through the three phases of the clinical trial. So there's three different phases that vaccines have to go through. So phase one, two, and three. Phase one is just a safety trial. So this is purely the primary outcome is how safe is this vaccine? And this is usually a smaller scale trial. They then move to phase two trial, which is primarily looking at the immunogenicity. So what that translates to is just how good of an immune response does this vaccine make? So, you know, are we looking at antibody titers? Are we looking at cellular responses? It's some sort of immune outcome. And then for the phase three trial, it's an efficacy trial. So this is where they scale it up. It's tens of thousands of people and they compare the rates of infection in the vaccinated arm versus the rates of infection in the placebo arm and see how well does this actually prevent, you know, infection or severe disease in the case of COVID. 
Yeah, my understanding is that the difference was not in the phases that the vaccine went through, but in the fact that they were kind of jammed together and sometimes even overlapping, and that the review process allowed them to expedite that jumping from one phase to the next, not to mention the actual review process being much quicker. Exactly. So yeah, none of the phases were able to be skipped. And actually, for our clinical trial, we did a combined phase one and two trial. And so in that case, you still have to go through all of the same checkpoints. It just means that you make one batch of vaccines for the trial. Um, So logistically, it's a little bit easier in that way. And then there's certain checkpoints at the beginning of it, you know, so for example, in our trial, Patients started at a really low dose, and then we worked up to the, the highest dose that we were planning on using in the trial as part of the safety. And as soon as that safety checkpoint was passed, then we were able to start looking at the immunogenicity of the vaccine. So they still have to pass all of the same checkpoints. It's just usually, I think what was really amazing about the pandemic is that we saw for a really unprecedented level of teamwork and collaboration, I would say, right? So how often do you have all of the scientists and funders and regulators all working on the same disease, right? So normally it's like there's hundreds of different things being developed and it takes time and like everybody has so much on their plates. But with COVID, all of that was stopped and everybody was focused on a single disease, which is why it's like, okay, so the regulators then normally have a certain amount of time that they would take to review the data. And it's not that it takes them like that long to review the data. It's just they have many other clinical trials that they're reviewing at the same time. And so they allocate that certain time. Whereas in this case, it's totally possible to expedite that, right? So you would warn the regulators, oh, like, you know, we're going to have, we expect to have this data on this date. So like be prepared to read it and audit it as you see fit. And so it was just, I think, a lot more cohesive teamwork than we've seen historically. Definitely. And from my experience in biotech, the enrollment issue is also a big one. And for some rare diseases, it can take years to get enough patients. But that was definitely in our favor for COVID as well. So it was certainly a confluence of accelerators that were in our favor. Exactly. And and to that point, another huge thing for an efficacy trial is you have to reach a certain number of infections, right, to know whether your vaccine is working or not. And so actually, as the pandemic has gone on, it's gotten harder and harder to do a phase three efficacy trial because you have to find places where, you know, people haven't been vaccinated and there's still lots of cases going around so that you can actually test whether it's working or not. And so those early phase three trials in the pandemic were able to just enroll people and know in a very short time span, just based on the amount of COVID prevalent in the population that we saw at the time. Yeah. So it was pretty much an ideal scenario for vaccine development. (laughs) Ideal for vaccine development and and not a lot of other things around the world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The one silver lining. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about ingredients and what's actually in these vaccines. And if you could actually touch on the use of animals and animal products, that would be helpful for, I know some of my audience is vegan. Yeah, absolutely. So for RNA vaccines, as I mentioned earlier, they're what we call like synthetic vaccines. So this means that we don't need cells from any sort of mammal, be it an animal or a human to grow these vaccines. So they're naturally a cell-free system. And as far as the ingredients go, it's actually pretty simple. Because it's not a cell-based manufacturing, we can very precisely define what the ingredients are in these vaccines. So for RNA vaccines, there's really five important ingredients. 
So the first is the RNA, and then there's four lipid components that go into the lipid nanoparticles. So these consist of so four different lipids that have kind of different functions within the particle. So the first is called an ionizable lipid, and this is just a lipid that is, when it's at a low pH, is positively charged. The function of this lipid is to complex the RNA in the particle. So there's an electrostatic interaction between them. And the other lipids in it, so one of them is cholesterol, which is, of course, found in all of our cells, so a natural ingredient. And then a phospholipid, which is a helper lipid, which... I was going to interject on cholesterol. I, I think to some people, cholesterol automatically means animal derived, but I someone told me you could manufacture it without using animals. Is that true? Yeah, you can also get it from plants. You can get plant-derived cholesterol, but actually one of the main, I guess, difficult components to source is the cholesterol that is manufactured synthetically. So actually for the regulators, that's what they prefer is to have a synthetically manufactured lipid, just because when you do it with like a chemical reaction, it's much more well-defined than purifying it from a plant or an animal source. And so that's what is preferred for these vaccines is just chemically synthesized cholesterol. But it's actually a difficult chemical reaction to do. And so it can be one of the limiting factors as far as the supply of these RNA vaccines. Although I'm sure they'll probably change in the future now that there's so much demand for it. So yeah, so then going back, the the two last lipids are a phospholipid, which is, yeah, just another lipid component that helps the particle stay a particle. And the last one is a pegylated lipid. So peg is an ingredient that helps with the stability of the particles and is found in, in a lot of common medicines and foods as well. So interestingly, that's one of the components where we don't quite know yet. So you've probably heard that some people have anaphylactic reactions to RNA vaccines. They're quite rare, but one of the working theories is that some people are sensitized to that PEG lipid. And even though it's a really small component, it's usually about 1% of the lipids in there. Some people may just have a, a severe reaction to it from being exposed to it in other medicines or food over the course of their lifetime. So you mentioned basic ingredients, mRNA, and then the sort of the fat bubble with four different types of fats, essentially. And I'm staring here at an ingredient list, and it has a couple of salts and sucrose. So what function do those play? Yeah, so the salts and the sugars will basically just help balance the ionic strength of the buffer. So you just want it to be in a buffer where it just it doesn't shock or kill your cells when you inject it, basically. And then the, the sugar also helps it so that you can freeze it to those low temperatures and you don't lose the integrity of the particles. I've seen a couple of things online about use of sh- sharks and is it squalene? How do you pronounce it? But my understanding is these are not used. These are used for adjuvant purposes and are adjuvants just never needed for mRNA vaccines or might there one day be a different mRNA vaccine that requires an adjuvant? Yeah, so squalene is a common ingredient in what's called MF59. So this is an emulsion-based adjuvant, which means it's kind of just these like little, it's like if you think of salad dressing as an emulsion, so it's like these little oil droplets that are in an aqueous solution. And those oil droplets are often made of squalene oil, um, which can be derived from sharks. There's You can also, again, derive squalene from plant-based sources now. So I think historically it, it was made from that, but there are now other sources for squalene. And so this is typically used for protein vaccines. So that's what MF59 has been approved for. 
And so for protein vaccines, you need an adjuvant to kind of wake up the immune system and tell it that the protein is there and that it, we need to train it to recognize this specific protein. For RNA vaccines, they're considered to be self-adjuvanting. And the reason this is, it goes back to the mechanism we talked about earlier, which is that your body has evolved to recognize RNA over time. And so just by injecting foreign RNA, it already wakes up your immune system and tells it that, oh, there's something foreign here, so you need to pay attention. Okay, that's helpful. The one other question about COVID vaccines I wanted to cover is, Maybe the timelines. So what happens exactly after you get jabbed? How long until it basically enters your cells? Which cells does it enter? How long does it hang out in those cells? And when can you detect it in your blood versus in your cells? What do we know about those timelines? Yeah, absolutely. So when it's injected, so there have been studies that have looked at injecting RNA vaccines through all different routes. So we normally get vaccines through an intramuscular injection, but people have looked at injecting them intradermally, subcutaneously, IV, and looking at, you know, how long is the RNA around for and how long is the protein expressed. So when you inject it intramuscularly, you see protein expression pretty quickly. So within four hours, you'll start to see, so for COVID, you start to see the spike protein being expressed. And then the RNA is very short-lived, actually. So anybody that works with RNA vaccines will tell you, like, the problem is getting the RNA in there and working. It's very susceptible to degradation um, via RNAs, which is present on every surface and everywhere in your body as well. And so it gets really rapidly degraded. So when it's injected intramuscularly, it's present for about three to five days. It mainly gets into the, well, we think it mainly gets into the muscles or the muscle cells. So at the local injection site, but there's also some immune cells that are recruited to the site to recognize the protein, which then take the protein back to the lymph node to really mature that immune response. So as far as how long it's detectable in the blood for, I don't think that's really exactly known for the COVID vaccines. I don't know that you would actually get detectable levels of the RNA in the blood. I think there would just be very little of it there because it primarily goes into your muscle and then drains to your lymph node through your lymphatic system. So it shouldn't really be interacting with your systemic blood very much. Do you remember, I don't know, this misinformation thing circulating a while back about ovary accumulation and the Pfizer vaccine and these like secret animal studies? Did that ever land in front of you? Yeah, yeah. So I guess, I mean, there's been a lot about like accumulation and fertility effects from from the COVID vaccines. But yeah, so from what I've seen from the studies that have been done for the COVID vaccine, as well as other mRNA vaccines, the, the RNA is present for about three to five days and then undergoes these very natural RNA decay mechanisms. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of appreciation just in the general public how much your body is constantly building and recycling and those building blocks, whether it's proteins or nucleic acids. It's just this, like the original recycling machine. Exactly. And you're exposed to viruses like every single day, right? And so it's something that your body is very used to seeing. And so, you know, that warning system in most people works very well. It's just if you're immunocompromised or you have some sort of underlying disorder where you may be more susceptible. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about the variants and sort of the intersection between mRNA vaccines and variants. So first of all, when the vaccines were designed, did they kind of try to buffer in advance against the possibility of different variants? 
And second of all, are you aware of work being done specific to like Delta or variants that may not have been seen yet? Yeah, absolutely. So when the vaccines were originally designed, I think everybody was just trying to get like a vaccine out there. And so they weren't quite thinking about and, you know, at the time, we didn't even have great information on what variants were going around, right? So now we we see these beta, gamma, delta strains going around. And probably there were many other strains that were going around early on. We just didn't have the surveying and the sequencing that we really needed to have a good idea of how the virus was changing over time. So that's really obviously started to come online more recently. So really the wild type ones were really like the wild type virus. But one of the really interesting things is that part of the reason that we were able to even know what protein to put into the vaccine was because People like Jason McClellan have done years of research for SARS-1. So looking at how do we design the spike protein so that it actually makes a good immune response. So when the sequence of SARS-CoV-2 was released in January of 2020, all of the scientists and vaccine researchers, you can download this big file of a genetic code, right? You have the whole code of the virus there, but it's actually can be very tough to figure out what part of that code do you put into the vaccine. You can't put the whole thing. It's way too big. So you need to choose one of the proteins. And so really we had clues as to which protein to choose because it was similar to SARS-1. And so we knew that the spike protein was really immunogenic and that there was this way to stabilize it in what's called the prefusion complex And that's what makes it really immunogenic. So we actually got quite lucky that it had similarities to the first SARS because that informed the antigen design that really made those initial vaccines work quite well. But do you envision there, sorry, maybe I just cut you off, but in terms of are Moderna and Pfizer right now trying to tweak the sequence now and create new ones? Or is it just kind of, we anticipate it's going to evolve so fast that by the time we do that, it's probably too late anyways, or, or what's the plan, do you think? Yeah, yeah. So no, definitely both of like Pfizer, Moderna and many others have clinical trials underway to look at different strains for sure. It's hard to say like how much it will evolve from here on out. But I guess for me, the really, I guess, comforting thing is that it's just so simple really to design a new RNA. Like if you know the mutation that you need to be making, it's very simple to design a new RNA vaccine. Maybe this will come in the form of boosters we'll see kind of how much it continues to evolve and how long people's immunity lasts for, as well as how effective it is against all of these different strains. So I think it's very possible that we'll need, you know, boosters with mutations, but as to when that will be, I think we're still trying to figure that out. Do you think it's likely we'll end up having sort of a cocktail that goes against different variants that are out there? Yeah, it's very possible. So I guess it just, it's kind of limited by the clinical trials that are being done, right? So it's like if people, you know, figure out, okay, here's the really important mutations and we're going to put this into one vaccine and see how the immune response is, that is totally possible. People have done that with different RNA vaccines where you can look at multiple different antigens in a single shot. It just takes actually doing the clinical trial and showing that, you know, you make a good immune response to each of the strains that are included in that. So I think, yeah, it's very possible that that will end up being approved one day. That makes sense. One thing I just realized I didn't ask earlier is, so what are the differences between Moderna and Pfizer mRNA platforms? Yeah, so they're very similar. So they both use these modified mRNA. So they use that same technology and they both use lipid nanoparticle systems as well. 
Um, the main difference is that it's really kind of like IP on the lipid nanoparticles, I would say. So Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech, which was really formulated by Acutus, they have different ionizable lipids. So that main lipid that complexes with the RNA, that component is different in each of those vaccines. And that's what I would say is the main difference. Although if you look at the chemical structure of them, and if you've seen the data, they're very, very similar. So moving even farther forward, what diseases do you think are next? Do you think some categories of diseases are, would be a better fit for this platform than others? I, I read something about an HIV vaccine underway. And what else is on the imminent horizon? So I think, yeah, it's so exciting that this technology has been shown to have efficacy now. Um, and so I think scientists are really excited about it, although I don't think it's going to be the type of thing where all vaccines become RNA vaccines overnight. But I think there's some really obvious targets or categories where RNA vaccines can kind of start to improve some of these vaccines. So one that I think is a really obvious one that I know both Pfizer and Moderna are working on is flu vaccines. So for flu vaccines, the main problem is that in a good year, the efficacy is 30 to 40 percent. And part of the reason is that is that we still manufacture flu vaccines in eggs. And this process takes a really long time. So we decide for the northern hemisphere of a year in February, which strains to put into the flu vaccine so that it's ready in October because it takes so long to actually make it. So because it doesn't take very long to make RNA vaccines, you can imagine instead we actually have great surveillance of the flu strains that are circulating all over the world at any given time. So we know what's out there. We just historically haven't been able to pivot and make a new vaccine very quickly. So we can totally do that with RNA vaccines now. So instead of you know deciding in February of each year, you could actually imagine that we could have a few different flu vaccines available over the course of the flu season where maybe as it changes, we're a little bit responding much more quickly than, you know, like an eight month lead time. That Yeah, that's a huge advantage. So just to bring this to a close, I know you are also really out there on misinformation fighting, and I love what you put out on TikTok. So I just wondered if you had any advice for people to make sure that they're getting the information from reliable sources, including TikTok accounts like yours. So how do you kind of go about differentiating a, a solid, legitimate information source from a, one that you shouldn't be listening to? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I started doing TikTok as part of an organization called Team Halo, actually. So um, this is an organization that was started by the United Nations and the Vaccine Confidence Project to get scientists and clinicians who are working on COVID-19 in touch with the general public to educate them about COVID-19 vaccines and trials that were going on. So it's actually, I think it's a really great way to educate people about the research that we're doing and findings from these clinical trials. So I guess for me, what I try to do on TikTok and when I'm communicating about all of this is make it very data-driven. Actually, all the data from these clinical trials is generally publicly available, right? Like you can go to the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine and read the journal, the peer-reviewed journal articles from all of these studies. But some people may not have the education level or scientific knowledge to be able to understand those papers. And so they read headlines and rely on the general news media to really interpret it for them. And I think for me, the most important thing and what I try to be really rigorous about is making it very data-driven and then identifying what source you got this from. So if I have some findings from a clinical trial that I talk about in a TikTok video, I try to always paste the link to it so that if you're interested or you want to share with somebody, 
You're not just sharing a random TikTok video. It's also backed up and here's the data. I think that transparency is really key and just one of the best ways to know that you're getting good information. I love that advice. I always try to do the same to provide the actual original source link where possible and encourage others to use that as a green light. Yeah, exactly. So many times, even when I read mainstream media articles, it'll be like, oh, in a new study from this, well, where did you get this from? Why haven't you even linked to the article in this article? It would be great if that became more of a standard of practice. No kidding. I experience that all the time. A new study and there's no link. It just boggles my mind. So yeah, that should be standard practice for sure. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you just wanted to sort of reinforce or put in a plug for? Sure. Yeah. I guess the only other thing that I generally say is I think something I've really learned from being on TikTok is we see all of these reports about people being pro-vax or anti-vax and all of this kind of negative rhetoric about being vaccine hesitant. But I actually think it's a really great thing to be vaccine hesitant. We should be thinking about what we put into our bodies, right? Whether it's food or medicine or anything. And so I think that's really great. Just the missing piece is that you need to be well informed about what these things are and and have sources where you really understand and make an informed decision. And I think that's the piece that's kind of been missing with COVID is that there's just so much new information all the time and people don't necessarily have access to scientists or researchers to answer their questions. And so that's what I think is really great is interacting with people on TikTok and being able to say, like, hear why people are skeptical about the vaccine or whether they still have questions. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to you know, have such an audience and be able to interact with people. So I hear what you're saying, that being a critical consumer is a great thing, but you need to pair that with understanding what's a reliable source of information and what's not. That's the ideal situation. Yeah, I would say being a critical and informed consumer. Well, thank you very much for your time and for all of the work that you do, both in your research and on social media to help people demystify what science is all about and just set the record straight. So thank you again for being here. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. It was great. 